This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Wednesday, the State Department of Agriculture is partnering with several groups to hold an all-day workshop on agritourism. The educational event is pegged to an outbreak of E. coli in eastern Connecticut earlier this year. Here in Connecticut, we love our local farms, but we wanted to find out more about the growth in agritourism, as well as why the state's urging farmers and visitors to take certain precautions. Joining us by phone now is Dr. Bruce Sherman. He's a veterinarian and director of the Bureau of Inspection and Regulation at the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Dr. Sherman, welcome to where we live. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. So you have an all-day, uh, I guess, a workshop of sorts tomorrow at the Legislative Office Building. Tell us about what prompted this, uh, this forum on agritourism. Well, what prompted it is the outbreak that you referred to um, where um, there were people that became ill uh, from contact with um, goats on a farm in eastern Connecticut. Um, and re- that uh, outbreak resulted in about maybe ar- around 50 people becoming ill uh, from E. coli 0157. And that included uh, um, two or three cases of children that had hemolytic uremic syndrome and had to be on dialysis. So as a result of that and um, some previous outbreaks in earlier years, not all related to direct contact with animals, but some related to animal products um, that weren't cooked or pasteurized, um, we felt that um, we needed to uh, conduct some outreach, um, not only for farmers or producers, but also for the public to make them more aware of the risks involved um, when farms open up their, or, or owners of farms open up their farms to visitors when they conduct open houses or just have visitors and people either have direct contact with animals or consume uh, food um, at the farm or animal products that are produced at the farm. And Dr. Sherman, so how did the, um, there's a lot of people that got sick from that exposure at that farm in eastern Connecticut. How did that happen? Was it, were they, were they petting the goats or can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it was, it was direct contact with the goats. Um, they were petting the goats. Um, they were in the intimately in the environment with the goats. Uh, It was during kidding season, um, so some of the children that attended the event uh, actually sat in some of the kid pens, um, kid meaning young goats, not children. Um, So the children held the the kids and um, had direct contact with them, uh, as did some of the adults and the um, um, then it's usually um, transmitted from uh, a hand-to-mouth um, oral route when they become, uh, when people become infected. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the organism wasn't only isolated from the goats themselves, but also in the environment. So with people just having contact with the environment, for example, if they put their hand on a gate or something that might be contaminated with the E. coli, that 
could be a source of infection too. It seems, um, I'm curious how much agritourism has grown in Connecticut. And because of that, you know, what are some precautions that um, local farms should take? Um, obviously, it's a good thing when visitors want to come um, and support their local farms, but um, there are some precautions that need to happen? Well, yes, and um, that's one of the purposes of this meeting is to not only address the risk, but to um, address the measures that farms can take to, to mitigate the risk. Um, and they, they need to make visitors aware that there is a risk. They need to have um, do a better job at putting up signage, limiting where visitors go on the farms, and um, limiting contact with the animals to a certain extent, um, and make sure that they have hand-washing facilities and instructions on how people should properly wash their hands after they've had direct contact with animals. This is where we live. We're talking about agritourism. Are you a farmer with livestock who holds events to encourage visitors to your farm? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to bring into the conversation Diane Wright-Hirsch, a food safety uh, educator with the Yukon Extension. You're also one of the speakers at this agritourism panel tomorrow. So welcome Sam, to where we live. Good morning. Thank you. So your, um, your wheelhouse is food safety. So we were, talk- we were talking with Dr. Sherman about precautions that need to happen when people are in contact with livestock. But um, how do you educate local farmers about um, keeping their products safe um, and making sure that um, their things aren't being transmitted when they're sold to the public? I think one of the biggest um, sort of differences in today's uh, agritourism or in farming in general is when you're bringing people onto the farm or you're serving them food, is to sort of take off that farmer hat and put on that food processor hat or food uh, maker hat um, because I think um, they've worked in a situation where the barn is where they do things and they're not used to the need for, let's say, a hand-washing sink or stainless steel uh, surfaces for best cleaning, you know, not thinking about the cleanability of their facility. So we really kind of have to start from scratch and um, get them to understand sort of the interface between the farm environment and the food preparation environment and what are the risks as well as how to mitigate them, um, starting usually with trying to find out who their local food regulator is and making really good friends with them. So we heard about the uh, E. coli outbreak from this farm in eastern Connecticut where there was livestock. But if a farm doesn't have um, particular um, animals, what are some risks that um, that could be there on their produce that they're also growing and selling? Excellent question. Um, well, even though there may not be domesticated animals on the farm, there certainly is the risk of a variety of wildlife. Um, deer can carry E. coli. Um, rodents, flies, um, if you're contiguous to a, a farm that may have manure on the premises, then um, that could be an issue. Or if, even if you use manure on your um, produce farm, um, the risk of cross-contamination of that into a food venue um, exists. So you, are, you work at the Yukon Extension. For people who are unfamiliar with that, tell us about the mission and how you work with farmers. Okay, Extension 
started back in the early 1900s um, as a USDA program to actually um, bring uh, research-based information to the farmer. So we basically had three areas uh, that we worked in. One with we worked with the farmers themselves. We worked with farm families uh, with what was called a home demonstration agent at that time. And then finally we worked with the kids with the 4-H program. And over the years, obviously, as our uh, agri- agriculture businesses have changed, particularly in the Northeast, um, we have brought on other audiences, but we still uh, like to reach our original targeted audience through a variety of programs with nutrition, production information, animal health information, et cetera. Is this something, this workshop tomorrow on agritourism and, and protecting the health of farmers or livestock and the public, is that something that local farmers are asking for? They want to hear this kind of um, information at an event like this? Well, <laughs> do they want to hear it um, or should they hear it? Um, I think um, particularly in the area of food safety, um, it's something that you know, really in terms of produce safety, we've been trying to preach since 1998 when the first guidelines came out. And, you know, like anything new, it's hard to bring people along um, because there will be, you know, knowledge to gain. There will be expenses to make, and it will make some changes in the way that they do business. Um, but usually, ultimately, once they understand the risks that are presented by their either their product or their operation um, and learn that there are things that they can do that won't necessarily break the bank, um, they do tend to come around. I actually have a, quite a few champions at this point in time. Uh, we have a farmer in studio with us, uh, Sven Peel, lead designer and owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems, also farm and grounds manager at Knox Incorporated in Hartford. Welcome to where we live, Sven. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to uh, throw that question to you. Um, how, um, how much do farmers want the state to help them educate themselves about, you know, proper um, regulations and inspections and what they should be doing to protect the, you know, the safety of their um, livestock as well as the public? I have to agree with Diane that I'm sure it's a mixed bag. Um, there are some that uh, have been doing the same thing for a long time and do not like change. And then um, currently there's a, quite a few more young people that would probably relish this sort of information so they can design their farms around uh, the protocols that Diane works on. And I want to turn back to Dr. Bruce Sherman again, a veterinarian, also a speaker at tomorrow's event about agritourism. Uh, Dr. Sherman, I see on the rundown that the CDC is also part of this forum. Um, Can you talk about issues from the national level and how that trickles down uh, to help local farmers here in Connecticut? Well, that's correct. We are fortunate to have um, a speaker, Dr. Megan Nichols from CDC, um, with us tomorrow. And um, CDC was involved in the investigation at the goat farm where the E. coli outbreak was, to which the E. coli outbreak was traced, and she has uh, agreed to um, be a presenter tomorrow. And so she's going to give an overview of some of the um, more notable outbreaks that have occurred traced to farms on a national basis um, so that we she'll create sort of a foundation to to show what the incidents can be and um, what the impact can be. And um, then in the afternoon, she'll be going over some of the measures that farmers can take to, um, to uh, mitigate their risks. 
And as far as that farm in eastern Connecticut where we had that E. coli outbreak earlier this year, are they still in operation? Uh, no, they're not. They're that... no longer in operation mm-hmm. at this point. Whether I, they may come back into business, but right now they are not. Is that something that was their decision or because of, of how um, the farm was operated that this was something that the, the state stepped in? No, that was, that was their decision. Um, one thing that people should understand is that livestock, um, no matter what species, um, is a reservoir for E. coli and can shed E. coli at any time under certain circumstances. Um, there may be more animals in a herd that are shedding at one time or even individual animals shedding more organisms depending on certain factors. So it's always a risk. Um, But that's the thing that we have to make people aware of, whether it's farmers or the public. I want to thank Dr. Bruce Sherman, veterinarian and director of the Bureau of Inspection and Regulation at the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Also, Diane Wright-Hirsch, who's a food safety educator with the Yukon Extension. Both will be speaking at a workshop on agritourism at the Legislative Office Building in Hartford tomorrow from 9 to 3. We'll have more information on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Coming up, we'll talk more about the state of agriculture in Connecticut. Are you a farmer? What made you interested in growing food and raising livestock in your community? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's late summer, and that means farmers markets and your weekly CSA share is becoming more bountiful. Today we're looking at whether farming is growing in Connecticut, and we've invited some local farmers to explain what led them to work the land in a time when most of us still depend on grocery stores for our food. In studio with us again is Sven Peel, lead designer and owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems and the farm and grounds manager at Knox Incorporated in Hartford. And joining us now is Henry Talmadge, executive director of the Connecticut Farm. Farm Bureau Association. Welcome to where we live. Hi, good morning. And also Susan Collins, and I have your information here, owner and operator at Clover Lee Farms in Mansfield. Is that right? It is. Susan Mitchell. Susan Mitchell. Susan Mitchell. Thank you, Susan, for coming on where we live. So um, I guess I'll start with you, Susan. Tell me about your farm. I have a small-scale diversified organic vegetable farm. And I utilize a very old dairy farm, which is no longer milking any cows, and so I'm kind of giving new life to it as a vegetable producer. And what led you to want to be a farmer? I thought I read in a bio that um, it wasn't something that you had started your career. Absolutely not. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, so there were no farms where I lived. (laughs) Um, And like a lot of fellow farmers my age, you know, we're not from farm families, didn't grow up in rural areas, and um, I started growing food with kids when I was a high school science teacher in New York State. And I lived in the Hudson Valley where there were a lot of small-scale organic farms and knew some farmers and started volunteering and then started working, left my job as a teacher, and started into agriculture. And how's that journey been so far? It's been pretty crazy. <laughs> it's been A lot of work. Yes. <laughs> it's been really fun and very rewarding. Also in studio with me again is Sven Peel. I understand that you farmed in several different states. So what brought you to the farm? 
uh, the crash of 2008. Um, I uh, was trying to figure out how to, <clears throat> excuse me, care for myself after being laid off. And um, pretty much one of the things I needed was food. Um, so I looked into several programs. WEA, uh, the Federal Workforce Investment Act, was one of them. And Connecticut didn't seem to support um, one learning how to take care of themselves. So considering there were no jobs, I generally used my unemployment uh, compensation as a stipend to teach myself how to grow um, and uh, moved forward from there. And how's that journey been for you? Obviously, you had to start from scratch and learn a lot. Um, well, I grew up with gardens in the yard, but that's very different than um, trying to produce for yourself, uh, working with community and children and so on. Um, it is bumpy. Um, the support structures are seemingly light at times. Um, I'm appreciative of Susan's work, uh, that's definitely helping uh, those uh, that are um, trying to do the same thing, um, and the other entities in Connecticut as well. And you mentioned Susan. She's also a steering committee member for the New Connecticut Farming Alliance, yes. so a support network for uh, farmers. Yes. Um, tell us about that, Susan, uh, why you felt the need to uh, be part of an organization like that. When I had moved to Connecticut, I didn't know anyone. I moved here for a job at a farm, and... Uh, with a couple other farmers, we decided we needed to sort of coalesce other young, new, and beginning uh, small-scale farmers just to really create a better sense of community and get to know each other. And so we created the New Connecticut Farmer Alliance for that purpose. And it has very slowly and organically grown over the last five years. And we um, put on a lot of social events so that farmers can really like get together and talk shop and drink a beer, you know, and really just develop a culture around agriculture. Um, the small-scale farms that are marketing direct-to-consumer and through CSAs, they're spread out a little bit in this state, so it's nice to be able to try to get people together to feel like there are other people doing what they're doing. Let's talk more about the, the farming community. Uh, I had mentioned Henry Talmadge is here, exec executive director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau Association. What does the landscape look like in terms of how many farms are here in Connecticut, Henry? Well, uh, for, first of all, the landscape of agriculture is constantly changing and has been since uh, you know beginning of time. So that uh, one thing to embrace is, is change. Uh, so there are, according to USDA, uh, just about just under 6,000 farm units in the state. Um, their definition um, is, is a farm that produces or is capable of, of selling $1,000 worth of uh, gross sales of ag products. Um, so that number's up from uh, in the 2012 census compared to 2007 by almost 1,000 units. So that's fantastic news in that um, the... Uh, the number of people engaged in agriculture, like Susan and Sven, are, are, uh, is increasing, or at least has increased. Um, the, during the same time period, the actual farm gate sales, which is the economic activity of the wholesale products sold, is about level at about $600 million. So there are more people producing about the same number. Um, and uh, agriculture in the state of Connecticut is defined pretty uh, broadly. It includes um, the ornamental uh, greenhouse and nursery crops, horses, uh, aquaculture, um, fruits and vegetables, obviously, and tobacco and other things. So it's a, it's a broad category. Um, so uh, we're seeing a growth in fruits and vegetables, although each are about 7% of the total of the farm gate sales. 
um, still almost half of it is in the ornamental green industry. So to give you an idea, and and actually tobacco, which is leaf wrapper tobacco, um, is actually still larger than both fruits and vegetables in individually in the states. A big surprise to folks. So there's a lot of change going on. There's a lot of new people engaged in agriculture, and there is a, a general trend towards the interest in local agriculture moving closer to consumers with our agricultural products, and that feeds into agritourism. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about tour, uh, agriculturism in Connecticut, this uh, idea of more farms in the state and inviting people onto the farm, uh, eliminating that middleman uh, to get acquainted with the local farmer. If you're one of those farmers, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You know, Henry, I wanted to ask you something about a follow-up from what Sven had said about um, there not being a lot of support when you're looking to get into um farming here in Connecticut. Uh, what are some programs that exist to help people who want to become farmers? And what are some places that the state could strengthen in terms of that support? Well, so one of the, the challenges with a very diverse uh, and increasingly diverse uh, balance of agriculture is that there are um, many, many people looking to do different things as opposed to, you know, commodity production of agriculture. If you're growing, you know, corn in Iowa, all the corn farmers have the same challenges and, and it makes it uh, more efficient to, to distribute information and, and help uh, to them as producers. So our model is fragmented. Um, that being said, uh, Diane Hirsch here from the University of Connecticut UConn program, there are some programs within UConn. Um, the Jeff Martin runs a, a sustainable agricultural program. Uh, uh, Joseph Benelli does uh, uh, support for uh, uh, economic and business plan writing, as well as the farm credit system, which has people to, to help. Groups like Farm Bureau and the Farmers Alliance and uh, all have programs to help people as much as, as, much as possible. Um, so there, there are resources, and of course the, the world of online resources is huge, but um, but what we see are each of these farms are individual uh, in, in terms of what their specific needs are uh, and challenges of getting information directly to them. It's not, the, it's not a real efficient way to do it. But So a lot of independent small farms in the state of Connecticut. Um, Sven, um, you, you were hearing what Henry had said about um, some of the programs that exist. What would have helped you um, when you look back at you know, your foray into to farming? Um, <clears throat> I generally... With, with what I've learned today, I can look at that from two different directions. Um, but I, I would say, you know, an introduction to soils and soil health is probably one of the most important aspects of, of food production um, that also inc uh, increases the nutritional value of food. Um, and so something programmatic in that realm that, that progresses through uh, a, a, a plant's life to its uh, – its sales and consumption, um, as well as um, the business aspects that are connected to that, and then the, the just the culture of the area that you're working in. Because even depending on where you are in Connecticut, the cult there's different cultures. I, I work on an urban farm, um, which is very different than where I live in Guilford, which is a little bit more rural. Um, and what are what are the needs of the of the of the populace that you that you reside in? Um, I guess I kind of answered that question <laughs> all in one. 
And, and Susan, um, when you went into to agriculture, again, you're part of this New Connecticut Farming Alliance, um, but your, your property is not very big. So how do you, um, how are you efficient in what you're producing and selling in your CSAs? Um, well, I think just to go back to for a minute as to how to learn about farming, um, like a lot of careers that are very hands-on, you learn through apprenticing. You work on a farm for others who know what they're doing. You do that for a couple years. It would be a hard, you'd be hard-pressed to just like jump in and say, I'm going to start a farm and not know anything about it. So you really need to take the time to learn, um, which is what I've done and a lot of others have done. It's really slowly moved up through the ranks. Um, and in that time, attended a lot of conferences, go to a lot of workshops, do a lot of reading, and gain that knowledge because it takes a lifetime to learn what you need to know how to farm. You know, I've only grown potatoes eight times in my life because it's a one-season crop. You know, that's not a lot. Um, so m my farm in particular is very diversified. I grow, you know, over 40 different types of crops. And so um, it is challenging in that right. Um, and every year is a little different. Some things do really well, some things don't, and that's part of farming. You know, it can be a little hit or miss. There's a lot of things that are out of our control, like the weather or insect, you know, explosions or molds or whatever it might be. Um, and so you learn to just roll with it and do the best you can. You mentioned the weather. We've had a lot of, um, it seems, uh, more dry summers in the last few years. How does that impact your success as a small farm? Mm -hmm. It can be hugely detrimental if you are a vegetable grower or animals and you don't have access to sufficient water. For vegetables in particular, I mean, and or hay, corn, um, anything that doesn't, anyone that doesn't irrigate crops, and that's really tough. Um, thankfully, as a... Um, as someone utilizing an older farm property, I have irrigation ponds that I'm able to use. So thank goodness. Otherwise, I would be I would have a whole head of gray hair because I'd be so stressed about the fact that we've had so little rainfall during certain stretches. Um, so having the right infrastructure on your farm becomes key in vegetable production. And I think we've seen probably Henry, you can comment on this some decreases in corn yields and hay yields because of lack of water. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly true, and and uh, you know it's localized um, because uh, you know the the nature of, of kind of summer thunderstorms and rain patterns um, can can actually give relief to a field on one side of the road and the other side of the road the, the crop is dead. Uh, so it's really complex. I think I think irrigation as we as we look at fruits and vegetables are, is a key component um, not only because of what Susan just described in terms of the the ability to manage moisture um, as much as anything else but but it also has a food safety component to it because as you as Diane Hirsch who was in your previous segment um, knows from the Food Safety Modernization Act the the actual use of irrigation technology meaning drip irrigation in particular will um, will make it um, easier to comply with food safety regulations as it's moving forward, which, which is a dynamic that um, has a regulatory um, umbrella that covers it, but, but, um, but that, those are capital-intensive items that um, have to have a payback. And, you know, it, it points to the issue of, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about sustainability in agriculture economic sustainability is such a critical component to that. And, and so that's, that's all enters into this 
this discussion about um, about local agriculture and how it's going to how it's going to fare. And what is the economic impact of all of these smaller farms in Connecticut? Obviously, we're not uh, Iowa or Kansas, uh, where you have these giant uh, farms that go on for for a long a long ways. Well, it, it's really interesting because um, analyzing the statistics and the data on this, you, you have to be careful about um, about what it means. As I mentioned, the the kind of the six thousand farm units. Um, 56% of those 6,000 farm units gross less than $1,500 a year in the state. So that means there's a lot of very small farms. And if you add that up, if you said, well, that's only that's not a lot of economic activity from a big portion of the number of farmers. And if you stop there, you'd miss a lot of the, a, a lot of the, the story. For one, those folks are providing a, a pathway to local food um, that has a multiplier effect in the in the economy, um, but they also are are farming land that helps preserve and protect the the rural landscape, um, provides wildlife um, uh, habitat, and some other, a whole host of other benefits that you have to be careful in analyzing and putting a number on. I mean, the agricultural segment's about three and a half billion dollars. To Connecticut's economy, and it's roughly twenty-eight thousand jobs associated with with uh, with agriculture, including the, uh, the 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 distribution and uh, kind of infrastructure and processing. So it's a big it's a big piece of the economy. But I think when we look at the benefits of agriculture, we have to look at, the, at all of the benefits uh, to the, to the state and what it means to the to the residents. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the state of farming here in Connecticut. If you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Laura from Meriden. Laura, you're on where we live. Hi. Um, I'm going on my first volunteer experience to an organic farm up in Maine um, through the Wolf uh, Program. I'm not sure if uh, your guests are familiar with it. I think they're nodding, so go ahead, Laura. <laughs> okay, so WOLF is a volunteer program uh, where you, uh, farms sign up and volunteers sign up and you get matched up to a farm. You get to actually pick which farm you'd like to go to. And um, it's a worldwide organization of organic farms. And um, so I'm looking forward to that. I tried planting a garden, didn't get anything this year. So I decided to go uh, learn by uh, joining that program and working on an organic farm. All right, Laura, thank you for your comments. So I know, um, Susan, you had mentioned earlier to learn about farming. It's important to apprentice and and get experience on the local farm. And so she's taking that a step by going up to Maine to learn. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is great. Uh, Woofing is certainly popular, often among young people who can travel maybe after college or during the summer and get a little taste of it. Um, It is very different, however, than employment on a farm. (laughs) Um, Woofers usually work just in exchange for room and board and stay for short periods of time. So for people that are farming for a business, um, they more often than not do not use woofers because it's not a um, efficient way in many instances to run a production farm. 
Um, you know, we often hear about uh, young people that are returning uh, to the land who want to be farmers. Um, but, you know, what needs to happen to get them uh, more interested? We're hearing anecdotally that that's happening. But Sven, do you want to um, take that question of of what are some programs that could um, exist today to help more people be interested in farming? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think the best bet is to just feel out the area and see who is doing what um, regarding organizations or individuals and um, and take that route. I think a big question tied to that is why are people leaving uh, their positions to either purchase or work on a farm? Um, we are seeing that uh, out of, let's say, say, Westchester County, New York City, people buying land in Litchfield and in northern Fairfield counties. Um, and that, so that's a different type of person than a, than a young person that's taking time off from school or after school and looking to uh, grow their or connect with the agricultural movement. We know that land is expensive. So how do they get that, um, you know, how do they get into that I mean, if they don't have the cash? Um, um, maybe you can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, do you want to take that? Well, you know, land, land uh, access is, is one issue that is a barrier to, to entry, uh, especially by young, uh, young farmers interested in getting involved in agriculture. Uh, Susan certainly has, has done a lot of work on this and experienced the, some of those challenges, so she could, she could speak to it. Uh, I, I will say, uh, from, from my perspective, there is a lot of interest in agriculture, both in young people and people who want to come to a farm as a, uh, as a second career and all that. Uh, it's, really, it's really very interesting and very exciting. Um, the, going back to this, the economic piece of it, um, the economics of local agriculture have to be improved in order for those folks to be successful. And being financially successful will grow the industry in a way that, um, that there's plenty of folks who will, who will step up and do that if they're able to financially. So I think, I think what we have to think about with local agriculture, sustainable agriculture, all, all Connecticut-based agriculture is about focusing on the economic um, potential and improve the economic situation of, of, of agriculture, that's what will be, that, that will be the ultimate success of local agriculture. And Susan's uh, nodding her head from Cloverly uh, Farms. Uh, talk about that, about you know, trying to find a way to be successful. It is incredibly difficult to um, make a livelihood as a farmer, regardless of what you're growing or raising. Um, Small-scale farms are very, very tough, um, and let alone trying to buy a house or send your kids through college or save for retirement. Um, the financial side of things is critical. And what I think we've seen, we've seen all these small farms pop up. We've had an explosion of sorts in nationwide, the number of people who are interested in farming. We've seen a rise in the number of farms in Connecticut but we're still marketing to the same crowd. Mm. So now we have more farmers in production producing more products and the same number of people buying it. So the marketing has not risen along with farm growth. And so the, the marketplace within even the past five years for local food has changed dramatically. And everyone is on the local bandwagon from McDonald's to Subway to you name it. Someone in marketing has decided that people want local food. 
Really, most people don't. Most people buy their food at the grocery store. I mean, if we can be perfectly honest about it, the number of people that shop at farmer's markets at CSAs and buy directly from the farmer or go to farm stands is minuscule. So I think we, and I think about this a lot as I try to support myself through farming because I don't, this is my career. I don't do anything else. And um, if the if the economics don't improve, like I will not be in business. It's the same, you know, same true for any small business owner. I happen to grow food and sell it. That's my commodity. Um, but for anyone, if you can't make a living at it, that's it. You're going to, you're going to close shop. So I think the marketing side of actually either getting more people to come out to the farmer's markets because um, we have so many farmer's markets in the state. A lot of them are really poor, poorly attended. The farmers hardly take anything home. So that's clearly not working. Mm-hmm. Um, grocery stores do buy some local products. Sometimes it looks pretty crummy on the shelves, and I've taken photos of it and emailed it to people and said, why would anyone want to buy local when it looks like this? But if you attend a farmer's market or a CSA or a farm stand, you see how beautiful that produce is. You know the cost is honestly no higher than what you're often buying at the grocery store. There's this lure that, or this idea that local produce or vegetables or meat is more expensive. In some cases, it is, and it's an economy of scale issue for sure. But if we want to maintain rural character, if we want to keep open spaces, if we want to have agriculture as part of our state, People need to buy it. Sven, you wanted to add something? Um, I just returned from upstate New York for a land planning course, and in that we were uh, designing a uh, 50-acre uh, uh, apple cider and cider pear site um, connected to the ponds and irrigation ponds. Um, that was part of the land planning course, um, and that we can definitely take that into account to our, our climate as well as what we're seeing down south right now regarding uh, these 500-year events um, where basically everything's underwater. So the, the planning aspect of that I think is incredibly important for beginning farmers to understand their the geography of their landscape, uh, um, how to retain water, how to sh- uh, shed water when necessary. Um, <clears throat> connected to that was uh, we visited a brewery as part of that course, and the, the gentlemen who were there, they just graduated UVM, and in New York, they – I don't understand the policy exactly, but they mandate that 20 percent of the products um, are locally grown. That's what these gentlemen were telling me. And um, so in that, I was thinking with the land planning aspect of this farm that we were designing, between these rows of fruit trees, we could grow grains for, for, for the beer, for the brewery, or grow hops. Um, hops are a little difficult to grow uh, considering our humidity here. Uh, so that uh, that particular farmer was actually interested in growing grains between her apple trees. So now you're connecting um, a farm in, in a locale to a brewery just down the road and you end up creating these closed-loop systems. And I think that's something that we need to look at um, in, in Connecticut as well. And that includes strengthening, um, the, I guess, the mandates – of of what we call locally grown. I want to take a quick call. Mia from Mansfield, you're on Where We Live, Mia. Hi. Um, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I'm actually calling because I'm a new bed and breakfast owner here in Mansfield, um, and I've been part of a CSA that's local. Um, however, one of your earlier callers was talking about really, um, you know, 
gaining experience in agriculture through actually working with and apprenticing with someone, which I've found to be really tough. Um, I've had no problem finding someone that I could actually purchase uh, a CSA share from, but to actually find one that would actually allow me to work with them in exchange for food that I could actually use here at the bed and breakfast. I'm wondering if anybody, um, any of your guests would be able to kind of point us in that kind of a direction. All right, Mia, thank you. We're almost out of time for this segment, but I want to go uh, to Susan real quick. Did you want to respond to her question? Um, Legally, for someone to work on a farm, they need to be employed and making at least a minimum wage. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, risks that farmers assume, and sometimes labor is involved in, you know, one of them. But that's the long and short answer to that question. I want to take another. uh, Kathy from Woodbridge. Kathy, you're on Where We Live. If you could be quick before we go to break. Uh, Yes, I just wanted to say that in Woodbridge, we were lucky enough to have some town land that wasn't being used, and it also had a house on it. We've now got a farm that's nonprofit and organic, and it's got a CSA membership of about 175 families. We also give away 10% of our food, and we employ a farmer on a salary full-time. Um, so I, I encourage people to look at their town open space and see if there's any any opportunities to start small farms there because you, if you're a, a nonprofit community farm, you're eligible for a lot of help from the U.S. and state governments in putting in fencing and irrigation and so on. So right. it's a very good model. Well, thank you, Kathy, uh, for your comment. Um, we're going to go to break now, but when we come back, we're going to explore the debate over preserving farmland at a time when solar fields are growing to meet demand for renewable energy. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about farming here in Connecticut, and I wanted to thank Susan Mitchell, owner and operator of Cloverleaf Farms in Mansfield, also Sven Peel, lead designer and owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems and the farm and grounds manager at Knox for joining us this hour. Um, Right now, joining us now is Greg Ladke, a Hartford Current reporter who covers the environment and agriculture, among other issues. Greg, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to have you come on the show because as we're talking about um, the state of agriculture here in Connecticut, um, we're hearing that uh, across the country, even in this state, there are is a controversy brewing about um, ways to preserve farmland when we have solar energy um, demand also growing. Can you talk about um, a recent article that you wrote about how this is uh, coming out here in Connecticut? Yes. Uh, I was talking to a farmer in northeastern Connecticut about the drought that we've been having. And he said, well, that's not really my biggest problem. My biggest problem is I'm losing 100 acres of prime farmland to a solar field that's being put up in in that part of the state. Uh, And when I started talking to other people, including the agricultural commissioner, uh, Stephen uh, Ravitsky, uh, he said that loss of prime farmland to solar uh, and other energy projects is his biggest concern uh, the state is spending millions of dollars every year to preserve prime farmland in Connecticut and at the same time indirectly uh, giving incentives for solar fields to get renewable energy. So it's one of these very difficult situations where you uh, have two very good goals and just in uh, a difficult situation because farmers don't want to be restricted on what they can do with their land and very often for some farmers, selling or, selling or uh, renting part of their property for a solar field 
uh, is a way to keep farming on the rest of their property. And uh, Henry Tallman just here from the Connecticut Farm Bureau. Uh, talk to us about what you're hearing about um, this this tension here in the state. Yeah, so this is uh, Greg. Greg's story uh, was was a, was a good one, and and kind of highlighted the fact that this is a complex issue. Uh, it's complex not only between agriculture and solar, but there's also kind of a complex discussion within agriculture about this because. As Greg points out, in that particular farmer losing access to land that he normally rents from to to, to farm corn on to support his dairy operation, um, there are farmers who also would like to put solar on their farms in order to utilize a a, 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 a law that was passed a couple of years ago, uh, which allows for virtual net metering on farms to offset their energy costs. So. Um, it's it's a very complex issue because it depends on not only uh, the, the farms and it's an opportunity to augment and offset some of their costs uh, by installing solar on on their farms, but it also comes to a land use issue and those who own the land versus those who rent the land. So even within agriculture, this debate is is going on, and our our policy development process as a as an organization. Um, is is we're working through that right right now, as a matter of fact. So you don't want to see any type of law that would limit how farmers can use the farmland, but at the same time, there are issues whether um, these solar companies should be coming on um, to be using the farmland for for their use. Well, so one of the discussions that is is going on about this is that is there a distinction between allowing solar on farms again to augment their their farming operation to offset some of their costs as opposed to a solar project that replaces an existing farm. And there's also, there's also a, a big debate within the state government uh, between agencies in terms of where should you, they be encouraging these energy projects to go. And it's not just solar now. It's also uh, natural gas projects. Uh, and there's a big – it'd be ideal to have these big solar projects on things like uh, brownfields, old industrial sites. The problem being it's a lot cheaper to put it on clear, uh, a solar field or an energy project on wide open, generally level fields, which is a, a description of prime agricultural land. So you have uh, the debate going on within the agricultural community. You have the debate going on uh, within different state agencies, about three different ones. And we have uh, – I think we're going to see legislators talking about it in uh, this coming session. And um, is there a concern that – okay, so say um, a solar company is using um, this farmland for a certain amount of years until I guess the solar panels are no longer um, usable. Is there a concern that that will never go back to the – to farming? I think there is. Uh, state agricultural officials say it's highly unlikely in their view that once you take farmland out of production, uh, that it will ever go back. Um, it, it's hard to imagine that if a solar panel comes to an end of its useful life in 25 years, they're just not going to replace it. Henry, did you want to add? Yeah, I think uh, even that issue is is somewhat different than obviously if you if you create a subdivision and build houses – that land would never be available for agriculture again. There's some debate about this issue in terms of how the land, the underlying land resources, which are the soils and whether they're disturbed or not, whether or not they would be permanently impacted or not. I think it depends a lot on the on, on what techniques are used. Um, 
but no question that during that interim period when the product, when the land is used for, for solar, it's not producing any agricultural uh, products. And, uh, you know, one of the things we're trying desperately to do is to grow agriculture in the state. So, so when, when the best land is removed from agriculture, it's a, it's a bad outcome, even if it's not permanent in, as, in terms of what it might be some days 40 years down the road. I want to turn back to Greg Ladke, a reporter for the Hartford Current. Before we run out of time, how are other states dealing with this debate, Greg? I think that it's starting to go uh, very much in the same s- scenario of, of what do we do and how do we deal with it. Um, our agricultural commissioner said that uh, told me that uh, this is a problem throughout New England and the Northeast where there's not that much agricultural land left and there's a really big push for solar and natural gas projects. So I think uh, we're at the crunch point here in the Northeast just because we don't have that much land left. But in other states where they have much more farmland and they see the price of crops going down, this is a lucrative way to keep that uh, that land in, in with their family. Is that right, Henry? Well, again, that goes back to kind of Greg's first point, and that is, you know, this. Uh, there's no question that solar projects will be enter into the economic reality of, of certain farming family and farming operations. So in my mind, there, there is an opportunity to keep farms in business because of utilizing solar. The, the challenge is how do you do it in a scale that makes sense for everybody? We'll have to leave it there. Henry Talmadge, Executive Director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau. Also good to see Greg Ladke, a reporter for the Hartford Current who covers the environment and agriculture, among other topics. Thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And thanks to technical producer, Kion Wolf.